Hi, you're listening to an older episode. The podcast is now called Travel Writing World. You can find the episode show notes and much more at travelwritingworld.com. This is Jeremy Bassetti, and you're listening to All Over the Place, a podcast on travel, culture, and the creative life. This episode takes us to Queens, New York, where I speak with Seth Kugel about his new book, Rediscovering Travel, a guide for the globally curious. Seth is the former frugal traveler columnist for the New York Times and host of a popular YouTube channel called Amigo Gringo. So without further ado, I bring you Seth Kugel. Okay, Seth, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's great to be here. Here, of course, being my own house, so it is great to be here, but it's also great to be on the show. Yeah, well, thanks. We we appreciate your time, and I know you're a busy man, and uh, well, it's it's good to have you on. Um, are you in New York? I am. I'm in Queens, New York, uh, which is a great travel destination. Uh, also, and which is one of the main reasons I live here. It's the most international place you've ever been. Mm. Uh, tons of just in the last ten years, I think two dozen. Nepali or Tibetan restaurants have opened up within a five-minute walk of my house, just to give you an idea. Hmm. Well, well, we're glad to have you from Queens, and uh, we're going to talk about your new book, Rediscovering Travel, A Guide for the Globally Curious. At some point, I want to, if, if you don't mind, kind of get into your, your background. I guess we can do this chronologically, sure. talk about you know travel in general, whether or not you did that as a, as a young man in, in school. and. Sure. And all that stuff. So in the book, you mentioned something about a, a homestay in Kenya. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Were you in university or how did that how did that work out? Sure. Well, I think first, I think it's important to say that most of the ways that I travel today, my travel philosophy, the stuff I write about in the book is largely based around a couple of trips I took when I was, let's just say, like before I got out of college. Okay. This was the first one. It was when I was in ninth grade, the summer after ninth grade. And I went to a camp called Camp Beckett. It's a YMCA camp. And when you're after ninth grade, they figure you don't want to be a, uh, in camp anymore, especially since the camp was an all boys camp. And they have these international trips, uh, that, uh, um, that go sort of have exchange trips with YMCAs in other countries. They actually still have it today. And, uh, Kenya was one of the choices, and we're talking about the 1980s here. Uh, it was a time when travel meant completely being cut off from everyone back home, and mm-hmm. as a teenager, that sounded pretty good to me. Uh, <laughs> and I had always been fascinated with the world and travel. I'd taken a few trips with my parents, lucky enough to say to be able to do that. But this was the first sort of real hardcore trip. We um, for about it was six weeks. For about half the time, we lived uh, with a family. Uh, there was about twelve of us, I think. Uh, we lived with a fam with families in rural Kenya. Uh, you know, in, in villages in rural Kenya, they were um, really, really uh, nice families. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had a YMCA in town, a little tiny YMCA. So that's uh, that's how we we ended up there. Uh, you know, sleeping in. It was my first basically my first uh, experience in the developing world. Uh, and it was also my first experience really living with uh, a family that wasn't my own. Yeah, that so must have been... That made a huge, huge impression on me. Yeah, it must have been shocking to some degree, too, as a young man like that, to be uprooted in place literally on the other side of the world. Well, luckily, uh, the fact that there were 11 peers of mine on the trip mm-hmm. uh, was helpful because it was a huge adventure, you know, to be a teenager... Uh, with a bunch of your friends on a on a trip abroad, so that that helped a lot. But I just loved every second of it. Like the, I loved walking down the path that led to uh, the little cluster of huts that where my family was living. Just walking down the path and thinking, "Oh my God, I can't believe it! I'm here in like Western Kenya, uh, so far away." I, I could picture myself like on a map, uh, a little tiny guy just kind of walking walking through the woods, and um, 
And yeah, so it was, it was incredible. And I think the, the key thing there was the living with a family. Um, because the right. next two trips I took, I, I, don't, I won't go into them all, but they both had similar characteristics. One was just a semester abroad in Paris where I live with a French family. And the last one was right after I got out of college, actually. Uh, I taught kids, uh, I taught uh, elementary school in the Bronx. And one of the Dominican students' family invited me to the Dominican Republic. So I stayed with them for a couple of weeks. So these are my first trips really independently, these three trips. And I just can't do the normal kind of travel anymore. Or I can do it, but it's just not the same. I, I right. need to be in a real person's house and meeting real people and um, and that sort of thing. Yeah, that's a, a struggle. I teach at a local college here in Orlando. And um, every year we take students to broad, typically Western Europe. And it, it's frustrating because, yeah, you want them to see all the major sites and there's typically coursework related to the sites that we're seeing. So they need to see them for the course, but there is, you know, a bit of frustration here that, you know, there could be so much more that they're learning if they, you know, went off that metaphorical beaten path. Right. Yeah. That's those homestays. There's nothing better than those homestays. Although, you know, someone once recently said something to me that I thought was really interesting, which is that everyone wants to get off the beaten path until they get off the beaten path. It's not for traveling off the beaten path is not for everyone. Mm-hmm. Like not every 15 year old would have loved sleeping in a hut <laughs> with uh, no electricity and no running water. And, you know, so, so it just depends on who you are and how you travel. And I try to distinguish that uh, both, you know, in my book as well as in real life, like not no pressure on anyone right. to, to do any particular kind of travel. This happens to be the kind of travel I like to do. And uh, it's not, not necessarily for everybody. And there's certain kinds of travel that aren't for me. I'm not really a big like adventure traveler. I don't I, I have, you know, no desire to climb Mount Everest, for example, mm-hmm. really no, no desire whatsoever. Yeah, I, I want to get into that um, later on in the, in the conversation, because you talk about uh, authenticity and uh, organic experiences in your book. And I think that's sure. somewhat related um, to, to, to where we're going. Um, but before we go there, were these early experiences your motivations to get into travel writing, or how did that evolve in your life? Uh, no, uh, they may have been the cause of my uh, getting into travel writing, but not not a directly not directly on purpose. It's a good question, actually. Um, so I got into travel writing completely by accident. I was a writer. Uh, I freelance a lot for the New York Times, writing news stories, mostly about the Bronx little bit about Queens, uh, mostly just this New York City outside of Manhattan. And I, since as a freelancer, I didn't make much money. I just had to scramble and get every job I could. And one of my jobs was with a guy who then became the New York Times travel editor. Um, but I had, that was when I was in my uh, early 30s. And, and I, but I had continued to travel like I traveled uh, in those first trips. So when he, uh, uh, became a travel editor. I had just gotten back from another incredible trip. I had started to learn Portuguese because I already spoke Spanish and I was interested in Brazil. So I learned, I started to learn Portuguese, and then I, I decided to take a boat, uh, basically down the Amazon River, sleeping in a hammock, sharing the deck with you know a hundred Brazilians because someone actually said that's a great way to learn Portuguese. Is just once you've had a year or two of instruction, just toss yourself in the right. middle of a bunch of Brazilians who have nothing to do for four days except talk to you. And uh, so I had just done that. And he said to me, if you have any ideas for stories, let me know. Uh, and I gave him that story and that became my first travel writing story. So certainly um, you have to be a good traveler to become a travel writer. Uh, but we should also mention in case there's any aspiring travel writers out there, you also more importantly need to be a good writer. Um, mm. which I found to be the most, um, most misunderstood part of travel writing is that it's about travel and not about writing. So it was, it was both. It was my experience writing for the times as a freelancer and then the way that I traveled. And, and if you put those two together, uh, and then put me in the right place at the right time, uh, with the guy who became the travel editor, that's basically how I started travel. Okay, so what, did you go to university to be a writer, a creative writer? Did you study English, or what is the writing? No, uh, I, I studied political science. Uh, I studied actually African 
uh, politics specifically, uh, directly related to my experience in Kenya in ninth grade. I had I kept following African politics since ninth grade. I, before ninth grade, I I would read the sports section of the paper, uh, and then in after ninth grade, I started fighting with my dad to to, to read the front page to see if there was any African news. So uh, certainly related related to my interest in the world. Studied political science. I mean, it's it's pretty much a myth that you need to be a to major in English or journalism to be a journalist. Uh, most, I'd say most journalists don't do that. Not that there's anything wrong with doing that, but um, I, I didn't really become a journalist until I was 28. Uh, I did that uh, teaching job. I worked for the city of New York for a couple of years. I went to grad school, actually, in public policy, um, studying immigration policy, because immigration was something I'd become interested in. I mean, immigration is almost just like, if you live in a, like I do, in a neighborhood of immigrants, it's kind of like, reverse travel. You're already in a bunch of different countries, and yet you can sleep in your own bed at night. So I was very interested in immigration uh, and all that. And then, you know, uh, again, just a little silly little thing happened. Uh, a friend of mine suggested I take a, a writing class one day when I was really sick of my job and uh, took a list, this night class uh, about how to get published. And um, it turned out I was a pretty good writer. Hmm. Got uh, several of several articles published uh, the first that first semester, uh, and then it was a couple years more until I really quit my day job. But that's kind of the story of how I became a writer. I mean, these days the, the path into travel writing is probably to to um, be very active on social media and to uh, do some sort of a blog or a video. Uh, channel like a YouTube channel or something like that. It's probably the easiest way directly into travel writing if you're if you're young. Mm-hmm. Uh, traditional travel writing is is uh, the tough business these days, right? It's, uh, yeah, it's something that you kind of get into a little bit at the end of your book in the chapter called "Bad Influences Good Traveler." You talk a little bit about the the travel industry and. Had some interesting ideas there, um, and and I guess if if we can just jump there, what what do you think sure. blogging and kind of Instagram and social media in the age of Instagram, what has this done to travel media, travel writing in, in general? Well, I mean, it's important to to know that travel writing and travel media has always been, in large part, an arm of travel marketing. There is. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, most publications had some sort of, I wouldn't say sleazy, but, but sort of behind-the-scenes interactions with uh, convention bureaus, visitors bureaus, the hotel industry, uh, but some publications did not. So uh, the New York Times, Condé Nast Traveler, sort of the big names that were able to pay for their own travel still maintained a sort of a uh, – and some of the guidebooks as well, when guidebooks sold really well uh, – had enough money to maintain a sort of anonymity and to not be in the pockets of the travel industry. And that has largely disappeared. So um, there's still a few publications that do that, but they have less money to do it than they used to. The New York Times is one of them. So I'm happy that I still write for them. Uh, And at the same time now, of course, and not coincidentally, a lot of travel content is in blogs and on Instagram and that sort of thing. And, um, the way you make money off of those things, or one of the ways you make money, uh, is through the travel industry. So you, you have uh, uh, not that everyone is kind of uh, dirty or anything like that, but uh, there is you, you do depend on the industry for your money, and you are writing about the industry. So it's a you know it's very you have to read stuff very very carefully. So a lot of People do it right, and the way to do it right is to make it very clear what companies are sponsoring you, uh, that the links you might click are uh, – that the website sort of will get a percentage of that money. Um, and But most, but I'd say most people are not very responsible about that. Like I can't tell you how many times I've seen on Instagram somebody raving about a place uh, without mentioning that they're being paid by that place. That's actually uh, against uh, – the regulations, right. the um, uh, American federal regulations. You have to reveal that you're being paid. And actually, Instagram has made it very easy to reveal. And yet some people still don't. Uh-huh. Uh, so I would just be, I, I, like I said in the book, I'd, I'd be very skeptical of 
anything you read having to do with travel. I'd even be skeptical of the New York Times and the big publications, uh, because uh, whereas overall the publication I think is great, there might be an article or two in there where uh, the person, um, you know, doesn't do as thorough of a job or maybe has, uh, they're not supposed to, but maybe has some sort of relationship with what's their destination, where they're going, or, or whatever. Um, that shouldn't happen, actually, in the Times and in the big newspapers and in the big magazines. But, but it never hurts to, to read extra, extra carefully. The other thing that happens with travel writing in general is even if you don't have um, a sponsor, the, the idea that travel has to be great. Like, you'll rarely read a travel article about something that didn't go perfectly. Mm. Uh, and that's just a, a lie, you know. I mean, travel. Uh, I, I think I say something in the book, like, you know, do you love travel? Is it perfect? Is it everything you ever wanted to be? Is it something you dream about? Well, if it is, then I guarantee you're not on a trip right now, because when you're on a trip, you know that travel is hard, mm-hmm. uh, unless you're really, really rich and you can go to business class and you can stay in a resort. And then who wants to do that anyway? Um, so. You know, overall, I mean, and then and then uh, now, of course, we have all the TripAdvisor and user reviews, which which are great in a way and terrible in a way. I mean, it's a it's, these are all complicated issues. There's a ton of information out there. You just have to make sure you're reading it extremely carefully, uh, and and not to forget the old fashioned ways of getting information, which mm-hmm. are still in my mind better. So, like asking friends finding a friend of a friend who's been there and social media works very well to try to find people like that. Um, and in good old fashioned guidebooks also, I think are, uh, are still around and mm-hmm. a lot of people still get them. And I think they're still a great resource. Um, when you're flipping through Instagram, you see all these great, great images and these exotic locations. And I guess one indicator that there is marketing dollars behind a location. is just to see how much, that location appears on your your feed. So when you start seeing a lot of Iceland or Tulum or something like this, you know that there's probably a, uh, yeah. some capital behind it. But in some ways, yeah, you're right. That's so true. And, and they often will do that at the same time on purpose. They'll invite a number of influencers mm-hmm. to a place, and you'll start to see a lot of sort of people show up in that place all around at the same time. So that's a great point. Right. But, the, you know, the posts... I mean, the glamorous posts are kind of like pyrite, you know, the fool's gold in in the sense that um, it shows yeah. you a rosy picture of travel. But, you know, travel by its very definition, and this is something that I've spoken about before, it, by its very definition is work, right? Travail, travel, burden, difficulties, sure. right? And so anybody that thinks that travel is always all the time glamour and leisure is, is up for a rude awakening <laughs> as soon as something goes right. not according to plan. People dream of taking a, a year off and traveling around the world, mm-hmm. uh, but I don't think anyone who takes a year off and travels around the world comes back and dreams of doing it again. <laughs> no, it's awesome, uh, but uh, you know you also need you know being at home is also awesome. Right. It is exhausting. Um, of course, that all depends on your age and depends on your how much money you're spending. And but you know, just by nature of my job when I was a frugal traveler columnist, uh, you know, it was always bone jarring to take buses and sleep in uncomfortable beds. Mm. And I love all that, but I I don't have any. You know, there are these bloggers that say, "Oh, they've been on the road for seven years." Uh, it's not of interest to me. Um, some people are like that. Uh, but I'm, I'm much more of the kind of person who likes to be home a lot of the time and then on the road a lot of the time. And amazingly, I have a career that allows me to do that. And yeah, travel is uh, made wonderful by the idea of home, right? <laughs> Being able to come back. Oh, to exactly. Uh, yeah. Exactly. I mean, it's having friends back home, having stuff you, you know, you love back home, whether that be, you know, even uh, whether that be like, you know, your local cafe or a, a gathering of your friends yeah. or I... I always stop off and, and have the tacos at the at the taco stand uh, right outside my subway stop when I get back from the airport pretty much all the time, as long as I've been away for a couple of weeks or more, just because that's something that I miss on the way. And I can't really imagine not having a home base. Um, uh, it might be something, might be a younger man's game. I mean, I might have wanted to do that in my 20s uh, when I wasn't a travel writer. So miss that chance. So do you have um, any connections to any other places around the world that feel like home due to 
how often you traveled there? Yeah, well, Brazil, Brazil. is, uh, I, I actually consider it sort of Sao Paulo, Brazil. I consider my second home. I mean, I uh, lived there for a few years, and uh, for the last eight years since I've been gone from there, I've been back at least a couple months a year every year. Mm. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty much associated with Brazil. You know, I have a YouTube channel in Portuguese for Brazilian travelers, uh, and so I'm pretty well-known. I'm, I'm basically better known in Brazil than I am in the U.S., weirdly, uh, <laughs> and I feel... Very, very comfortable there. I mean, I don't have a home there. I just do the sort of Airbnb or stay with friends. But mm -hmm. I feel just absolutely comfortable. And that is something that I think makes my life, you know, uh, 10 times better. I, right. I don't know what it is about having two different places where you feel equally comfortable. I guess we all might have that, like the place we grew up and the place we live now if we live in a different place. But in having it be in another country, uh, and just be able to go and having uh, all your friends there and to, to speak the language and, and, and to know how things work. I mean, things work very differently there. You know, to compare New York and Sao Paulo, one of the big differences is you can't walk around holding your iPhone in the streets of Sao Paulo because there's, just like there used to be in New York, there's a lot of muggers and there's a lot of security issues. And, and so to know, it's interesting, it's so weird. Like I always get there and then I, I realize I have to flip a switch in my head and activate like my Brazilian side. Uh, you have to treat people differently. Mm -hmm. People are, are much sort of nicer in, in Brazil than they are in New York City. Um, you you have to be very careful that you're you, you don't you're not sarcastic because they don't like sarcasm as much. Yeah, that's the sort of you know in New York we're very sarcastic. So, uh, you got to got to turn that down uh, a few notches when you get there. But that that feeling uh, usually when you travel somewhere and you're not that familiar with it. That's a hard adjustment. You don't really know what to adjust. And that's also fun. I mean, it's certainly fun to be in a place you you don't know that much about. Um, and like I'm going to Prague in a couple of weeks to do a story. And I haven't been in Prague since I was in college. And that was, uh, you know, that was just after uh, the revolution and the end of, of the communist blocks. It's been a couple decades. I have no idea. I have no idea what's going on in Prague. Mm. Uh, of course, I'm doing my research, but the idea of stepping off a plane in, in Prague and being in a place where I really don't know how to act except for whatever I've read before I get there is, is also incredibly, incredibly appealing um, because everything's new. Right. Uh, and you often will see things that you're like, well, I, I can't believe that exists. The example I always give in, in Brazil is. Uh, People are much cleaner in Brazil than they are in the United States. They take more showers. Like, I never thought of that before. Like, that there might be a culture where people are more into taking showers. <laughs> and yet, the Brazilians, in a, in a study, it was, there was an actual study done um, by, I want to say Euromonitor, but I'm not sure. Like, a worldwide study about which nationality takes the most showers, and the Brazilians not only did they win, they won by a ton. They take like 50% more showers than the next country. Jeez. So that's just the sort of thing that's amazing. And I love learning that kind of thing. And you, could, you can then delve into why that is and what it has to do with the culture and the history. But, but just like being like, what are you talking about? You take three showers a day. That's so weird. And then having that sort of culture clash. And I'm expecting that to happen in Prague. I studied in... Um in Seville and in Madrid doing some research. And every time I go back to those cities, man, you know, they've, they've changed since I've been there, but something about it just feels so comfortable and so much like home that you kind of wonder yeah. why other people don't spend a large amount of time in a foreign place to get to know it very well, instead of kind of coming and going, traveling so quickly in and out of destinations, you know, you, in order to have that comfort, right. you need to be there for some time. You need to cultivate a sense of place there. I guess this is kind of going yeah. in the territory of your book a little bit. You talk about this, um, well, throughout the entire book, uh, about the prepackaged travel companies and, and tours that are operating around the world. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your feeling, your feelings about? Uh, well, I mean, I guess my feelings are mixed. There's certain things that you can't do without a tour operator. Like you just can't do it. I, I was in the Amazon recently and I had taken these boats, like these passenger boats 
but you don't like go and see animals or anything like that or, or treks through the jungle because then you might get lost. So you do need tour operators and package trips for certain things. Uh, I just think that you should only use them when you absolutely need them. I think that the number of experiences, quote mm-hmm. unquote, to use the term that Airbnb uses, uh, that are now available, like the idea of selling experiences is you know, in a way a little bit weird for me, like uh, putting a capital E on experience because the experience is just what happens when you go to a place and to have that all sort of set up for you beforehand. Uh, to me, it's, it's not as much fun. Um, you know, yeah, okay, you want to like be, have a cooking class in the home of a great Italian home chef. All right, I see the appeal to that, mm-hmm. and fine. If you want to do that one night, then that that's that's great. I would rather sort of find my my own adventures um, when I. But then again, if I were like passionate about Italian food, maybe I'd, I'd want to do that. So again, it comes down to personal choice. I just, I, I've had a lot of luck in my time finding experiences on my own um, by networking beforehand, by being uh, not being scared to, to walk into an unknown neighborhood or being mm-hmm. social and talking to people. And so, so um, I'm, I'm happy to a certain extent that. Uh, so many parts of the world are not accessible, and then some of them are only accessible through uh, through tour companies. Mm-hmm. Um, and I certainly have nothing against taking like a food walking tour or something like that. It's just not really my thing, uh, especially with all the resources out there. If you want to design a food tour, you can do it yourself. Right. Um, yeah. With all the information out there, geez, I mean, there's. There's almost not a, you know, uh, there's almost not a restaurant in the United States that doesn't have at least ten reviews on TripAdvisor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you made me think about a time I was uh, in Austria and I went on a bicycle wine tour in, in some valley, and we hopped on a boat. <laughs> we were leaving the uh, the winery or whatever, and where, where we had this fabulous lunch with uh, a local family, and the boat went by was on the Danube and it kind of, you know, floated by and the tour guide said, oh, look, there are hosts on the uh, on the banks of the river waving at us. And at the time, I was oh, like, oh, yeah. that, they're so cute. You know, what a, what a great, what a great experience. And, but, you know, in hindsight, it was, you know, being close to, to the theme parks here in Orlando, it seems, <laughs> it, it seems like it was a, you know, kind of like a Disney experience. It's like cheese whiz in some ways, delicious, but yeah. perhaps not as good. Well, as- you know, when it's even worse, it's even worse when you go and like, it's an indigenous mm. group doing a dance, a welcome dance right. for you or something like that. You know, then, it, then you start to get into sort of geopolitical issues of discomfort. It's like uh, the ethnic pavilions back in the world fairs in the, in the 19th century, right? Yeah. Come look at the natives and how they live. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but, but I mean, before we track it too much, I mean, we're also doing that to some extent when we go places just ourselves. So, you know, it, there's all different levels of authenticity or, or whatever. And I mm-hmm. hardly claim that I'm always in the absolute highest level of just hanging out with people. Of course, um, we all participate in the travel industry in one way or, or, or the other. I guess we're talking about authenticity here, and, and you mentioned the idea of experiences with a capital E, and you're alluding to this. And so in one of your chapters in the book, I think it's, well, I think it's the one called Organic Experiences. You make the distinction between cultivating organic experiences and what that looks like compared to the prepackaged authenticity that we've been uh, talking about. So can you, I guess, summarize the idea of organic experiences? Yeah. Well, I mean, I just, I I guess I kind of um, compare it a bit with organic. I I called that as a direct, directly influenced by organic food, which is, you know, just food that sort of hasn't been adulterated in any way before it gets to you. Mm -hmm. And what I say is that that's actually what all food used to be like, right? Before we started putting additives and preparing like a, a package with like luncheon meats and crackers all in one packaging or whatever. And so, um, so yeah. And I'm, I love that you said that those prepackaged tours are, are the ones claiming to be authentic. Um, authenticity is a, a tricky word. It's one of these words that, that 
some people don't like to use in, in travel because it tends to be used almost like the word exotic. Mm-hmm. Like it's usually people in developing countries. It's usually in developing countries that you have authentic experiences, quote unquote. Like nobody says like, oh, I'm on the New York City subway. This is an authentic experience. Or maybe some people do. But what we really think about is we're thinking about like tribes and you know, poor people and whatever. So that's why authenticity is a, a weird word. But I use it anyway. I'm just sort of trying to take back that word and, and use it. And uh, but it, but it is true that um, you know if a if an experience is set up for you, you know it, it's not fully authentic. I, I get that right. it's authentic because they're cooking the food that they would cook for themselves if they even are, which probably they're not. But but I get the reason it's done that, and I get the reason that that's appealing. Um, but to have things happen organically is is great. I mean, the first story in, in the book, uh, when I just stumbled across a distillery in, in, in sort of a small town in Hungary, and I compared that with the tours of distilleries like whiskey, uh, Tennessee kind of whiskey distillery tours. Mm. And it's, it's just like, it's not that one is good and the other is bad. It's that one is, is better. And one is good and the other is better. You know, I mean, right. I love, I take tours of wineries and stuff, and I think that's great. But nothing compares to stumbling across a place or discovering it, if you want to use the cliched word, uh, and weaseling your way in, kind of. Mm-hmm. Like meeting a real person, and when they invite you in, knowing that they're inviting you in because they want to invite you in, not because somebody is paying them to invite you in. The problem is, of course, that that's not automatic. It doesn't always happen. So people are so tempted to pay for experience, guaranteed experiences right. um, instead of, it's like a low risk, low reward. So uh, I'm, I always try to get people, people always say the same thing, right? Well, I only have two weeks of vacation a year. I only have three weeks of vacation a year. I have to make every minute count. And I say, okay, okay, do your thing for, you're going away for 10 days, do your thing for eight days, do every little tour you want to do. And then take two days and travel the way I'm mm-hmm. urging you to. Uh, and my belief is some people will hate it, but some people will be like, oh, yeah, now I see. Like, this is the way, even though one morning doesn't go well, then something great happens in the afternoon, uh, which makes the whole trip and and gives you a story to tell. And, um, you know, there are tough times in travel and those are times when you make a decision and you made the wrong decision, right. but it's better to then having someone else make all the decisions for you. I mean, I'm trying to figure out how to do a, an article just like about how much I hate all inclusive resorts. <laughs> I got to figure out how to, how to get that out there. I mean, uh, it's one thing if you've just been, you know, fighting in Afghanistan and you want to relax and be treated well, and then, you know, God bless you, go to an all inclusive resort. But for someone who, you know, has the energy and youth and uh, um, wherewithal to be a real traveler, you know, an all-inclusive resort, that's just the worst. I mean, the word all-inclusive is the key word, right? Because all-inclusive means they're trying, they won't want you to leave. Right, yeah. You You can go to a resort, you can go to a nice beach hotel with a pool and activities. But there's no wall around it. Like you can still walk <laughs> to the center of the town. I mean, I was I did a story about an all inclusive resort. It was it was a fun story. I it was the idea was not to go to the resort. The idea was what's the cheapest you can get to the Caribbean for a weekend from New York. And so I just did the absolute cheapest across the board. And it turned out it was this fairly cheap all inclusive resort. Uh, once you included the price of the resort, the transfer from the airport, and the airfare. Uh, it was the cheapest way I could get to the Caribbean for a weekend. And I remember being discouraged to walk into the town and have a meal at a local restaurant. It was in the Dominican Republic. Well, you know, I speak, not only do I speak Spanish, but I learned Spanish from Dominicans and I had that trip to the Dominican Republic. I mean, you're not going to keep me from going into the town. Uh, no, it's dangerous. It's, uh, no. What, you have what to, city yeah, was go that? Go through the gates. What's that? What city was that? Uh, it was neat. Uh, you know, I don't remember the exact city. It was near La Romana in the Dominican Republic. Okay. You know, my, my mother's Dominican and I spent quite a bit of time down there and you're exactly oh, yeah? right. She's from cool. Puerto Plata in the, in the northern part of the island. Awesome. 
And there are those resorts, as you say, that literally have walls around them and they give you the little wristband and they disgorge you and they scare the shit out of you, right, to leave the resort. And if you want to leave the resort, then you go on these little four by fours and cruise through the sugarcane fields or whatever for an hour or two. But, yeah, they discourage you completely. Yeah, you know. I'm sorry. Keep interrupting you. I I just love talking (laughs) about this stuff. I can't stop myself. No, no, I was just going to kind of blather on about, you know, how frustrating it makes me to see the tourists confined and scared to to go explore. But Sure. I mean, I was going to say that I the last time I was in Puerto Plata, um, I rented a I went with two friends and we rented just an apartment on the beach, hmm. not a resort. And we actually ended up going to an awesome bachata concert. Uh, I was, I forced my friends to do that because I happened to like Dominican music and, uh, um, we went and it was, a, it was, it was obviously a fantastic experience. We were by far the only non-Dominicans there. There may have been some Dominican Americans there visiting relatives, but mm-hmm. there was no one that wasn't Dominican at that concert. And people were very interested in what we were doing there. And of course they think it's crazy that just me, like from New York, likes bachata but um but it's just it was great and i i should point out that of course this is easier in a place where you speak the language right so then people will say like well i don't know if it comes so i have two two responses to that one of the guys who was with us on this tour didn't speak spanish but he was smart enough to travel with someone who spoke spanish he chooses his travel companions often based on who speaks the language there or who's traveled there before. And that's a really interesting way of doing things. I really admire him for doing that. Um, you know, if he, uh, it's true. If, if I were, if I had a friend, a Chinese American friend going to China, uh, and visiting his, you know, grandparents village or whatever, I'd be like, I'm in, mm. you know, normally speaking, if China is not the first destination I think of, but you know, when an opportunity like that comes up, or, or um, you know, we all in the, in the U.S., I mean, God, in Orlando, there's so many immigrants. If you work with immigrants or you're friends with them or whatever, and they may have relatives in the home country that you could go stay with or at least meet so you have somebody there um, to sort of be sure you're taken care of. So the other, uh, and by the way, the other thing I say about language is, you know, um, don't feel bad about going to English-speaking countries. There's a lot of really amazing English-speaking countries in the world. The Caribbean is full of English-speaking islands. Of course, Australia and New Zealand. And then there's the countries in Europe where almost everybody speaks English. Scandinavia, uh, Denmark especially, the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. I mean, so if you're worried about the language thing, there's those are two solutions. So you've mentioned, you know, I guess, one of the threads that is running through this is that often, you know, travel can be hard work. And one of the ways to ensure that the work is done better, I guess, is to try and engage and communicate either by knowing the language or traveling with someone who knows the language. Are there any other um, ways in which uh, you recommend people to be able to have these organic experiences? Or uh, to, well, to... well, I mean, it's, you've led me in right into my number one rule, which is to go to places where there's not that many tourists. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that you can do that in any place you go. So you can go, sure, you can go to a country that doesn't get many tourists, like, I don't know, um, Guinea-Bissau in Africa or something. But you can also go to Italy and go to a region with fewer tourists, or you can go to Rome and stay in a neighborhood that's less touristy. Mm -hmm. And it's just sort of automatic. Again, it's my number one rule of travel that people in places who receive fewer tourists are nicer to the tourists that come. Uh, and it's obvious why, because they're not sick of tourists. And some of them, especially if they don't travel, but they, they meet someone, they see someone from another country, and they're like, wow, I'd like to meet this person. Like, it's interesting to me to meet a foreigner. And it's, of course, interesting to the foreigner to meet me. This happened to me in rural Sweden, where I was pretty much the only foreigner at this medieval festival. And in, in, I don't even remember the name of the town. But uh, I met a farmer there. And he seemed very tickled that I was an American at this festival and invited me invited me over. Hmm. Uh, and it's fine. He turned out to be a big Beatles fan. Well, you know, it's a weird experience. 
but but so that that's really the number one thing. I mean, also again, if you say, well, I really want to, you know, see the pyramids uh, in Giza, or I want to be sure I go, I go to the Louvre or what, whatever. Yeah, okay. So for part of your trip, do that, and then for part of your trip, take a train to another town in France, you know, or uh, go to find a lesser known. Uh, lesser known ruins in Egypt. Maybe you can find, uh, you know, uh, one of the things that I think is a really fun thing to do is, you know, there's UNESCO World Heritage Sites, of course, which are, there's hundreds of them. I don't maybe there's more than a thousand, I don't know, uh, which are places that, have, of course, been designated uh, as as part of World Heritage. But there's also all the places that were rejected for UNESCO World Heritage status. And you can find the list mm. online. And often those places are really interesting, but because they sort of never got that push of being UNESCO World Heritage, they never really developed the tourism infrastructure. Um, and uh, that's just a, that's a that's what I'd call an advanced level <laughs> traveling trick. Yeah, well, that's a good one. I'm gonna I'm gonna look that one up uh, when we when we finish talking. I, I like this. Um, I dubbed it Kugel's corollary. Right, the number of visitors a place receives is inversely related to how nice locals are t- to those travelers. <laughs> yeah, um, you you just you just obviously read it the way it's written, which right, sounds right. better than the way I, I said it. But it could it just couldn't possibly be a more important truth truth of travel. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, you're just you're not going to make any friends. You're not going to make any friends, French friends, visiting the Eiffel Tower. You know, that's just not going to happen. Right. So, what, um, if, if you don't mind me asking, what were the motivations that led you to to write this book? Um, you mean besides the motivation that an editor came to me and said, "Would you like to to write a book about travel?" And here's some money. Right. That was one of the motivations. <laughs> but, but, uh, but. It wasn't that much money, so I did need some additional motivation. Uh, and the reason, the thing I think really was, I had just done this job five and a half years, writing every week about travel, frugal traveler, New York Times, prestigious position, very lucky to have it. Uh, there's a million people capable of doing that job. And I thought I had learned a lot about travel in that time because I was not a full-time travel writer until I did that job. I was a part-time travel writer, part-time regular journalist. And so for five and a half years, I just observed the tourism industry. And I hadn't seen a book out there that instead of writing about travels or um, writing about this, there's a good book called Overbooking about the the tourism industry. But I wanted to write about the interaction of travelers with the tourism industry and share some of the things I had seen. Uh, And quite frankly, it just drives me crazy when people waste their vacations. Uh, And like I said, I'm not talking, you know, you do what you want to do, but I think people are being pushed towards packaged experiences Mm -hmm. by the number of opportunities that are out there. If all those opportunities weren't there, people would have to fend for themselves. Some people that would make them miserable. But I think the kind of person that, that uh, reads travel, uh, you know, sections, listens to podcasts about travel are the people who don't want that. They they want sort of that old-fashioned, I'm going to go out and see what happens feel. And and I notice that becoming harder and harder, and even some people perfectly capable of having their own experiences were, were um, you know, were falling for, for these uh, package deals. Mm-hmm. So that was basically it. I mean, I, I just, um, I, I, and I wanted to get down, I wanted to condense my experiences, all the best experiences, what I learned from them, and hope that people would be interested in reading it. In a way, um, it's just like having all in one place what I think I learned in five and a half years. And just just like almost so that I can sort of forget it and start Move on. learning new stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm looking at the book right now. And, you know, it's not, it's not a New York Times bestseller. It's for people who really love travel and really are willing to read a book about the nuts and bolts of it. And, but the fact that it's sitting there, it's like an incredible relief to me mm-hmm. that I got it all down somewhere and that now I can look at other aspects of travel or get back into uh, other, other aspects of journalism. I mean, the great thing about journalism is if you do the right kind of journalism, you're traveling anyway. Like, right. um, I would love to do some pieces now that involve me traveling, but writing about 
not about the travel itself, writing about certain people or events or, or, or whatever. So I think that's why. Yeah, well, you know, irrespective of it not being a New York Times bestseller, <laughs> it's refreshing in some ways. And I'm you know, definitely going yeah. to recommend my study abroad students to read this book to encourage them to to think about travel in, in a different way, in a way perhaps that they haven't thought about. Right. Many of these students are Great. getting on planes for the first times, you know, and they've seen the Eiffel Tower through Instagram. Right. And so this might help them travel better. So I'm definitely going to recommend uh, them to read this. I mean, can I just say yeah. that that is, I haven't thought about this in a while, but that is literally the purpose uh, that we came up with when I wrote the book, uh, a way to pass this information along to people just beginning their travels. Not that it's, there's a lot in there for our people who already travel, of course, but that is exactly it. So I'm so glad that you, you saw the book in that light. And of course, Bulk discounts are available for students. Should, uh, should oh, that I'll, be of interest? I'll, I'll, con- <laughs> I'll contact you. We'll, we'll be in touch. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No, um, but you know, I, I want to be respectful of your time, so I want to kind of close this out sure. soon. But um, I, I just want to linger here on, on one last, um, I guess, idea or, or chapter or point here, and this is the the chapter that deals with uh, people and travel. And I found this one to be also, you know, very very interesting in the sense that people travel. Well, their, their, their experiences during travel become so much more rewarding and, and so much better when they connect with people, right? And which can be the yeah. hardest also, the hardest thing about travel, right? Connecting with those people. I mean, people walk away from experiences remembering who they met and, and the experiences they had with those people. So I was wondering uh, if you could just talk to us a little bit more about the ideas encapsulated in that chapter, People in Travel. Sure. Well, I mean, first of all, I think you said it quite well. Um, you know, when I remember trips, I almost always remember the faces of people I met before I remember, you know, sites or paintings or, or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, but I think that it's a very hard thing to do. It's very hard to meet people, uh, when you're traveling. Uh, of course, you've already heard my rule that will help, but it's also, uh, I basically present a whole lot of ways to make it easier to, to meet people. And one of them is just simply, for example, like if you're traveling with a partner or with a friend, make a deal that you'll talk to 10 strangers that day. You'll each talk to 10 strangers. Uh, and, you know, I, the thing is you'll strike out eight times or nine times. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you won't, you know, if you, you're just going to sort of ask them for directions or something. That's not striking out. You'll get the directions. But a lot of times people will, will strike up a conversation and you can tell right away when, whether people, when people, whether people are interested in talking. It could be, you could be next to someone on a plane. And you'll know right away, believe me, that they don't want to talk to you because that's <laughs> often me not wanting to talk to the person next to me. But um, so that's that's basically what it's about. And it's also just, I mean, there's a lot of things they talk about, like making friends these days when you travel, meeting people in other countries. It used to be like a one-off experience, like unless you fell in love or something, uh, you would meet the people and then they'd be gone. And maybe you'd send a postcard to them at some point. But now with social media, I mean, I'm not like the number one attraction of social media, but boy, what a way to stay in touch with people. Right. You know, I get little notes from uh, the guy who um, I stayed in an agro-tourism, agro-tourismo place in, in Sardinia, which are like, they're like bed and breakfast, but in, in on farms. Mm-hmm. And I really hit it off with the, the guy. He didn't really speak English and I didn't really speak Italian, but somehow we managed to communicate and I still get little notes from him once in a while. And that was like six years ago. And I was there for two days. And he must have had like hundreds and hundreds of other people stay in his his place. And that's just so cool. Um, so, I mean, are there any other aspects of the, the chapter? I haven't read it in a while, so I don't remember everything that's in it. No, I guess that's it. Just, um, you know, being able to open up and, you know, try to engage. I think that's... Uh, for me, at least one of the most important takeaways from that chapter, sure. you know, smiling and, and, and just, just trying, well, right. Another thing I will bring up, you know, in closing is, is it, it, even within a city, even within a neighborhood where you go makes it easier or harder mm-hmm. to meet people like sitting in a park is a much easier place to meet people than, you know, waiting for the subway when, when the train's going to come and sweep them away or certainly better than stopping someone on the street uh, in the business district of a city and asking them for directions because they're off to a meeting or, or whatever. So, 
So yeah, so being I shouldn't have said that about public transportation. Taking buses, for example, in a town is also a nice way to meet people. You have an easy uh, line of questioning. Hey, can you please tell me when? Hey, I'm not from here. Would you tell me when we get to this stop? Um, and you you might have to do it by sign language, but that'll be a way to, to meet people. And often, you know, if you're really really lucky, the person will be getting off the same stop as you. And then you'll keep chatting with them. I mean, that's actually happened to me in New York. People have, like, I, I was, uh, this Chinese family was really lost in the subway. And uh, they said, oh, can you tell me how to take the train to Penn Station? And I was taking two trains to Penn Station, right? So so then I became that local person. I'm like, well, just come with me. And so they spent about 20 minutes with me. And in New York, that's a lot of time to spend with somebody. Mm. So, um, so, yeah, so putting yourself in positions where you can meet people, taking a picnic to a park uh, instead of eating in a restaurant, for example, uh, or taking public transportation instead of taking Uber. I mean, uh, that, uh, well, as I said, I can't stop talking. I mean, Uber is great in some ways for travelers if it's a replacement for a taxi because it's easier. You don't get cheated as much with Uber as you do in some cities and some foreign countries with, with taxis. Mm-hmm. But it's a sure it's a bad substitute for taking public transportation. Uh, because that's such an important part of, of travel. Um, right. And the kind of spatial awareness as well, right? Learning how to, to navigate yeah. a city. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's one of the yeah. great, great aspects of, of traveling, going down into the, the subways and, you know, rubbing elbows with uh, with everybody else. And, sure. Absolutely. Well, uh, Seth, look, uh, thanks for your time. Uh, in closing out, can you just uh, let everybody know where they can find you online? Absolutely. Uh, Seth Kugel, S-E-T-H-K-U-G-E-L, will find me just about everywhere. SethKugel.com, at Seth Kugel on Instagram, at Seth Kugel on Twitter. Uh, if you want to buy the book, I'd love for you to do it through the links on my site. Uh, either SethGoogle.com and then click on book or just go to globallycurious.travel. It will take you right there. Um, and that's it. Oh, and uh, my email is very, very public. So if you read the book and have any comments on it, just go through my website and you'll be able to send me directly an email. Very good. And well, look, have, have a great time in Prague. And if you ever make your way down to Orlando again, uh, let's get in touch. I'll buy you a beer. Awesome. Thanks. It's really been fun. you enjoyed this episode of all over the place please consider supporting the show if you find it valuable you can do this by subscribing to the podcast in your favorite app reviewing it following me on social media or by supporting the show directly via patreon links can be found in the show notes and on all over the place thanks for your support and farewell <laughs>